Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Quentin, I never know what to say after I say that because it's always like the same Well, because you don't want to be the same thing. Every like, single time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so we got to work on... It's good to have the same thing, the same intro, but not necessarily, a, oh my gosh, we've got so much to talk about. Oh, i got a great show for you today. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> so excited. All right. But I'm sure we don't know we have a great show. We, That's the thing. I don't want to lie. Right? Mom didn't raise a liar. Exactly. So now you got to say, hey, I'm not really sure. I hope this we got a good show into for this you one today. With much trepidation, but I think it might be okay. I'm really hoping this time we don't suck. That's <laughs> yeah. that's like probably the most brutally honest way we can we can start right. the show. I'm pretty sure we'll be okay. So, I will I will say I am happy to see you. I was kind of having a kind of a, a crappy day. Not not for any reason, just kind of like, you know, seasonal affect disorder. It's springing in Portland. I've been sitting inside all sad. All. Seasonal affect? Is yeah. that what you just said? Yeah. Really? Talk about an acronym looking for words. Yeah. Like someone's like some psychologist is like, I really want this this to be it called to be sad because I feel sad <laughs> and I want it to be sad. So yeah. it's going to be like screaming angry dog syndrome. No, that's not <laughs> it. Uh, seasonal yeah. affect disorder. There we go. No, I. but it's a notable thing up here, especially when, um, when, when it like we're having a, a pretty nasty run of, of weather, yeah. which is beautiful. I love it. I like it too. I, I mean, I went for a ride. I went by and stopped by your place yep. during the worst of it because I was just looking for puddles to ride through. Yeah, it's not it's not that horrible as long as you have the right gear and you know it's not. There's been days that it hasn't been that cold, right? When I was commuting right. for a while and it was rainy and cold in the 30s and wet. Yeah, that's that's horrible. That's not fun. But if it's 60, yeah, it's been 60, which is what. Nice. I guess a lot of people don't understand about up here is they think it's like the Midwest when it's gray and cold and wet. They're like, they're thinking Chicago on the rare day that it's not like snowing and sleeting. It's like, no, it's, it's, it can be pineapple express weather up here and it's really not that bad and you just deal with it. And I don't know. I like the rain. I don't mind it. I'm used to it. I'm, I'm desensitized to it, but but man, the people are poopy up here. Right. And you, you feel it again, going back to the sad, you can just feel the vibe and, and the people that you interact with, even if they don't recognize it. Yeah. They're, they're a little bit, everybody's a little bit more testy, a little bit on edge in a weird way. And you just kind of have to know that about yourself, but okay. It's this time of year. I'm getting sad. Yeah. I, lost my tail. I mean, that's, that's the thing when you live at a latitude, this, this high, it was like that when I lived in Holland, when like the sun would during the summer, the sun would go down at like 11 PM. Yeah. And then the winter it's like, dark at three it's the yeah. same thing here you sure. just it affects you You just have to be aware of it yep anyways enough enough talking about how sad we are yeah let's talk about some motorbikes <laughs> yes. let's talk about something happy yeah happiness uh super prestigio this weekend i'm super pumped for it I, I don't even think i'm gonna be able to get to watch it it's it's streaming live on fan choice tv are you gonna be uh in route somewhere yeah i'll be in socal i actually leave tomorrow morning so today's thursday i leave friday for socal Why wouldn't i'll you be, be gone for five days plug in and do that just because it's a busy schedule, and like like things start at nine a.m. Pacific what are you doing? time. Uh, there's a Dionysia open house for their new Orange County store. I thought they already had an Orange County store. Yeah, they revamped it, and now okay. it's gonna be like the flagship kind of model for the f- stores that they're opening and the stores that they currently have are gonna get revamped as well. So it's a big to do for them. They're opening up more stores. I thought they abandoned that that. No, model. no, I think they're doubling down on it. Huh. Yeah, I there I don't know how much I'm supposed to talk about that, but yeah. They're building out some more stores. It seemed like a very cuz I'd went I had gone to the one in Chicago. Yeah. And there it just seemed like a bit of an odd duck because 
Well, it's in Schomburger. Schomburg? Sure. Schomburg. And, and it's, yeah, it's odd because it's, it's Chicago. Weird spot. Yeah. But what it, what's odd is that there's other motorcycle shops in the area that sell thin easy. Yeah. And that's the, that's the gray area. It's like, well, where, well, what are you offering that you're not offering to the dealerships and why aren't they? Yeah, it's odd. Yeah. yeah I don't have to, I don't have to say about that. Um, I like the idea. I like the idea. And this actually, I think ties into something we, we had kind of talked about for the show where brands, owning their retail outlets owning the process yeah, more sure. through the the customer process and all that uh, i don't blame them i'm not hating on it yeah. i'm just saying it's odd because then they have to manage that it's dynamic, a different thing right it's a different core competency it's like oh you know if you're really good at making gear you may not be good at running your own store whereas like sure. cycle gear well i was gonna say cycle gear really good at running retail outlets but sometimes the joke is cycle gears aren't so good for that sometimes they are though that's actually you know what our portland cycle gear those guys are aces. Yeah, they are. So I don't I I don't have anything bad to say about Cycle Gear, mainly yeah. because it's for the past eight years. If I needed to go get something random on a day that's not normal day that I could get at another motorcycle, I'm there. Yeah. And they usually have what I need. Yeah. Right. So there it is. It always I always just get like kind of like that Walmart feel. Like sure. I, I definitely agree with everything you just said, but sometimes I just kind of feel like this is where my motorcycle dreams go to die. <laughs> yeah, I know, but sometimes you just need a twenty dollar set of goggles. Right. right, that's all you need, or, or a master link, or yep. a chain. Sure. One or time I went in there and I got a, I got gearing for my CRF two fifty because I wanted to go, I wanted to change my gearing in between nights of racing at that flat track down in Salem, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to see if a couple teeth would would help me. Mm-hmm. And I, they had a gear, they had the two teeth up or down or whatever it was, blew my mind. But that was, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of like sprockets, like it fits a lot of different bikes for a Honda, but it still amazed me that they had it there. And sweet, sweet black anno. Anyway, no, it's good, good shop, good retail in general. But I, I can't speak for the whole of of the, all the cycle gears. But I think they make a lot of money, so I can't imagine it's too bad. I've always been surprised that there hasn't been like a strong competitor to them. Usually, like in in marketplaces that are mature and developed, you see two or three strong competitors. Yeah. Uh, and cycle gear is really like the only one you think about, other, other than just like your local dealership. Sure. But that's kind of a microcosm of the industry of the motorcycle yeah. industry. There's not a lot of strength Yeah. period. Right. Yeah. Uh, one thing that is of note is the, uh, I believe he's the GM there. He used to be a, um, a regional rep for cycle gear. His name is Brian talent. He's a rad dude. And we had, uh, I'd ridden dirt bikes with him a few weeks ago. Uh, and he switched on and knows his stuff and because I, he had a more he had a corporate mind i think it lends itself to being really good at the local shop so that might be why it's why it's good that would be a cool person to have on a podcast sometime it would be make inter- a note interesting we definitely you and i have definitely been talking about getting some guests on the show so i think that's something to look forward to uh in the coming months uh, I think if readers have any uh, suggestions or people that they'd like to see on the show, definitely drop us an email to enthusiasts at asphaltandrubber.com. We certainly would be curious to hear uh, who you guys want to listen to talk because I don't think you just want to hear Quentin and I talk all no, the time. No, not every time. Not every time. Nope. Maybe like 30% of the time. <laughs> all right. So after Easy, what are you going to do? Uh, so that's the thing. They kind of have a whole weekend planned for us um, that's going to culminate in doing the Jason Pridmore Star School on no Monday kidding. and Tuesday at Chuckwalla. Chuckwalla. Chuck and the Walla. Oh, yeah. So that'll be my second time in recent months going down there. So I'm actually pretty stoked to get back on that track, having actually at least now understood which direction the turns go. Yeah, unless they go the opposite way, because that then track's I'm totally pretty hosed. cool both totally ways. Totally hosed if we go the other way. Yeah. 
I'll be relearning it all over. But it'll be good because now my collarbone's fully healed up and I can actually like enjoy myself what out there. What bikes are you going to do now? Well, he's sponsored by Cowie, so we're probably going to be on like 6Rs or 10Rs okay. or something else, 300s. And Dainese is footing this. Well, Dainese sponsors Jason Pridmore and his cool. school, so they support him and it's just a part of that. And we're going with, there's going to be some other social media industry kind of people. So it'll be, it'll be fun. I'm, sure. looking, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's not going to be raining and it's not going to be like 30 degrees. So. You better knock on some sort of wood. I already checked the weather. Is it It's okay? going to be nice. Okay. Yeah. It's it's getting chilly at night now. Yeah, of course. Down there. It's but a high it's, desert, right? Yeah. It's still like 60, 70 degrees during the day. It's awesome. actually going to be perfect, really. Yeah. Sounds good. So I'm good, envious. Good times there. Uh, recent news. Uh, I want to get through real quick. Deus Ex Machina up for sale. Louis Vuitton supposedly looking to to buy the ultimate hipster brand of motorcycle brands. Deus. 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 We're not we gonna to, we're not we're we not gonna whip it out for that. No, right? No. Oh, because no. you know most motorcycle people are Deus. Deus. Deuce. Deuce down. Deuce down. That's right. Deuce X. Double Deuce. Machina. Deuce X Machina. Machina. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, a lot of people are seeing that and not knowing what the f it is. Well. It was started in Australia. Australia, yeah. Yeah, and then crept over the States. A good friend of mine from SoCal, a guy named Wooly, uh, is kind of, the, I wouldn't call him the proprietor there, but he's the bike builder down in, in Venice. Okay. And he's rad and has made a lot of cool stuff. They, they have their own bikes that are like almost kit-like, but then he makes his own out of, you know, it's kind of Wooly's workshop. Yeah. So shout out to him. I was supposed to, last time I was at the Eichmann show, uh, I'm already forgetting what year it was. 2014. Uh, I was supposed to stop by the the Milan uh, Deus shop because uh, Federico Manoli of Ducati fame, former Ducati, yeah. former Ducati, and actually he's he was um, was interim CEO at uh, Dainese. He's got his fingers kind of in in the industry. It's kind of impressive. Sure. So he's got the runs the the Milan shop. But uh, he he invited me down to. He runs it. Well, I think he's got people who run it. I think he's he's like the guy that brought it to he's Milan. He's the guy. But I, I don't think he's. I've got a. I've guy. got a story about that dude. One time he came to the states for Laguna Seca, and he came by Pro Italia when I was working there as a technician, and it was right before the races. And we were all about to head up there, and we had a pilgrimage. Most of us would ride up from Pro Italia, which is in Glendale, California, SoCal, to the to the track. Uh, to Laguna, which is, I don't know, a few, few hundred miles. Yeah, it's a um, few hours. Yeah. And someone informed him that my, my at the time, my ST2 had 99,996 miles on it. And he, he made me disconnect the speedometer so that it would display at Ducati Island with 99,996. Because otherwise, it just goes to zeros. Oh, yeah. Right? Just a, <laughs> It'd be like a real low-mile bike. Right? So, <laughs> One so owner. I did that, and I that was my first, the first time my wife had ever ridden with me was literally on the way to Laguna. Like It was like, hey, you want to ride on a motorcycle? Let's go hundreds of miles through the high desert. So we do that, and she's fine. On the way back, I, when, I did, when I connected the speedometer... She was livid at how fast we were going because she could see. Because now she and knew. She was, she was like, <laughs> we were going down freaking Highway 1 through Big Sur and she was hitting me. I was going like 65, like light speeds. And she was angry, so I had to put black tape over the Speedo after that. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's move on. So Federico, good dude. Super cool dude. Super cool dude. I interviewed him when he was at Dainese, filling in for, for Lino Dainese. Super switched on, super cool guy. 
a uh, real pleasure to talk to. So good stuff there. Uh, now you think there's this, this purchase by Louis Vuitton, eh, well, it doesn't matter. What, what is it? What does it do for us? Well, that's the interesting thing. Well, I mean, for, for starters, just recognize the fact that, uh, LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy. That's, that's what the letters stand for, but they own so much stuff. So much stuff. So I, Moet, I, I, is that a, that's a, a champagne? champagne. Yeah. And Hennessy is of gin, maybe? Uh, bourbon whiskey. I have no idea. You're looking at the wrong guy. Right. Not I'm, my I'm, beverage yeah, of choice. Sure. Um, but very interesting to look at what their total holdings are. They have a piece of uh, the diamond industry. They own De Beers. Blood diamonds? Yeah. Uh, they're in perfumes. They're in, I mean, they're, it's really quite interesting to see what their holdings are. And I can see you Googling that. So maybe you can tell me what they are because I've already forgotten. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm Googling Hennessy because I, all I can think <laughs> of is really, really fast cars. Isn't that Hennessy? Right. So yeah. that's, uh, that's, I know, I know what you're talking about. That's right. The Hennessy Venom. Well, anyway, so Hennessy is cognac, whatever the hell cognac is. I'm sorry. I don't even know. Right. Fancy fire water. I'm not, <laughs> it is fancy fire water. Oh, that's good. Okay. So yeah, fancy fire water. Anyway, so uh, good, high level, high branding, and, and looking at Deus because Deus not only makes these cool bikes, but that's really not anywhere near what they truly are doing as a brand. They sell lots of, hip gear yeah i mean I, I i made the joke in the article like you know deus is is about as easy to divine as the word cool itself because it's just you know it's like good pornography you just know it when you see it that's the that's, <laughs> that's the classic phrase <laughs> <laughs> okay that comes from a supreme court case yeah, no that's sure yeah. i bet yeah uh the joke the joke from that is most supreme court justices are extremely old the very uh -huh. tenured Ancient. legal minds. So <laughs> there's this story of all the justices and they have like a private viewing room where they're watching this pornography. This was probably the Larry Flint case, right? Mm, Maybe not, but Larry, well, Larry Flint was more with slander. Right. Of course that really didn't have much to do with whether yeah. what he was putting out, no pun intended was bad, was pornography. It was slandering uh, Jerry Falwell. Right. Okay. Right. Sorry. Right. All right. So, what, sorry, I'm, I'm interrupted. So they're all sitting around. So, yeah, so, they're, at porn. so in the movie theater, they're watching porn, and of course, like they don't know what's going on. It's so, like their aides are having to tell them, like, "Well, you know, uh, you know, Justice Brennan, the uh, man is now you inserted have to be the woman." When you say aides in this, right? You don't. That's it. what they're called. They're aides. They're clerks, actually. Is okay, the, the clerks. Correct I like term. that's better. All right. They're they're clerks. Okay. You know, again, like to be a clerk for like a Supreme Court justice, like you yourself have to be an it's impressive, impressive level. legal mind. Sure. So it's not it's nothing to poo poo, but like. This is that idea of like, you know, just some guy being like, okay, you know, uh, you know, Supreme Court justice, he's now in the, the man is now inside the woman <laughs> and she is res reciprocating the pleasure to him. And, uh, they're breaking <laughs> it down the most clinical way possible. <laughs> I would not, I would not want that job. No, you no just way. imagine like you went through all this education, all these years and you, you know, you're one of the top people in your profession and your job is basically to describe porn to an old man. Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Christ. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's an, <laughs> to get back on track. I think it's an interesting piece of news, just in the sense that for me, it feels like this this post authentic kind of thing is coming to a head, where you're seeing Day is selling out to this large corporate conglomerate. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction is in the marketplace of that. Um, They'll co opt it into fancy, you know, 
stuff well, right yeah, well i think the plan is to grow so the grow the brand so it's in more locations because right now i think they're in five locations they're in like bali sydney la milan bali yeah freaking bali well because it's like surf moto kind of oh thing. that's right i forget the surf side sure yeah okay uh, so you know you could you can make a really strong uh, Tokyo I think is the other one, Tokyo, yeah. yeah. But anyways, like you can make a strong argument like really every major city could have one of these things. They could be kind sure. of epicenters for motorcycle gatherings. You know, and obviously they need funding. They need capitalization at this right. stage to get to that point. Right. Somebody's looking at that as hey, we could turn this into something. The interesting thing is like they're making like three million a year U.S. five million I think it was five million a year Australian. So whatever the com- the uh, conversion rate is now. So they make it for a retail shop. They're pulling in a lot of dough uh, for what it is. Of You're course, saying just the one in the U.S. No, no. So in general, so there, there's five locations. Yeah, they're saying the brand generates 25 million in revenue every year. So five into 25, five per store. Obviously, going to be different locations yeah, sure, are going to contribute sure. differently to that. But interesting to see the math breakdown, the financial breakdown. Um, but for me, like I'm sitting here, especially seeing what came out of Icmo with all the scramblers and uh, cafe racers we saw. I just feel like we've 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 just tapped this this hole dry. And now we're kind of like, you know, now that Honda is making like kind of a, a oh, scrambler sure. and sure. you know, Suzuki's getting on board and right. Once something is, you know, there's it's a normal progression. It's cool and then it's usually underground and or off the beaten path and then once everybody else realizes how cool it is, the original adopters they're moved on to something else early. And then it becomes just a pop. It's like pop music. Yeah. Even Mr. Cool himself, the Fonz, eventually jumped the shark. He jumped that shark. Yeah. It was a beautiful thing, but it was a fleeting moment. Yeah. Speaking of beautiful things, did you see that KTM 1290 Super Enduro that this, this I did. Chesh was, guy's making? It was a pretty rowdy thing for sure. I thought that would be so in your wheelhouse. I, I guess. I mean, I'm there there's a strange there's a strange dynamic like I like my dirt bikes, and I like the bizarreness of the of the Terra Corsa, the the Panigale with the dirt tires on it. But making a big, heavy dirt bike, well, it's only 180 kilos. It's yeah, well, but, or just under 400 pounds, or just cumbersome. Or I get it. I, I I have fun with it myself. But if I'm just gonna have something like that, I'd I'd rather have a real dirt bike. You know, like it's too far to the line of oh shit, that's almost a dirt bike. Ride it. Ride a 690R. That's a big, sure. That's a big machine for for what I'm used to, and I with bags on it, I can rip. I, I took our friend AJ's out one day when we were out at McCubbin's Gulch. It was great. I loved it. Surprised the shit out of me how good it was for. I mean, it had bags, not full, but it had the bags on all this other touring stuff, and I'm out there ripping and tearing through through the woods. But it's a big heavy thing, and it's not like my other bikes, like proper dirt bikes that are going through the woods. So adding another, I don't know, what would you say? It was 180 horsepower or something obnoxious? Yeah. And I, I, you're just uh, you're just uprooting trees with that thing. <laughs> I don't really... No, it would be fun. I'd love to ride it. I'd love to see one in action, sure. I can't blame the guy one bit. I'm stoked that somebody has created something like that. Yeah, I guess he's racing it at the uh, Ayersburg Road. Oh, that's cool. Okay, well, that, that not, alone... Not the hard enduro section, because oh. there's just different little things yeah. that they do there. Yeah. But still, at least he's doing something like that. It'd be interesting to see it, right? I would love to see... Enter that in like a AMA national moto, right? <laughs> I'd love to see that going up the hill with Shugel. They should have a class for that. Oh, that would be rad. Big, gnarly V-twin dirt bikes. Oh, that would be rad. Inappropriate dirt bikes? Just just obscene, <laughs> but they, they would tear up the track. They would. They would just annihilate the track. It would be 
It would just be ditches. They wouldn't even be. It wouldn't. Oh, that would be horrible. All right. Cool. Very neat. I'm surprised. I thought you would have been on more about it. I, I thought it was really cool. I was I was stoked. Just maybe because I'm on like a super dude kick lately. Sure. I feel like I've been like kind of in that that zone of super duke love because you got to ride one down in socal yeah. a month or two ago and it's good. all about it i'm sure all about it sign me up i look at, i go by my street fighter in the garage and i go mm, you better not you better not say anything out of line because <laughs> i got your replacement yeah but um all right uh definitely want to talk about some more r1 r1 recalls i know oh, yeah. we kind of devoted a whole episode two shows ago to it but we've definitely I've had some developments in the now, last now that uh, few it has days. Come. Uh, I think it's called Transport Canada, the the Canadian importer. Mm. They've issued a recall for 240 units. They have. Right. So that's in that's writing, legit. done and done. Yeah. What about Europe? Anything? Haven't seen anything from Europe. Okay. I have an, uh, I have an opinion on why this is happening. So they only have so much time. If somebody finds out that their machine has a recall... That's when the clock starts ticking. Potentially, depending on the state, uh, that's when the clock starts ticking for Lemon Law buyback. So if they release it, then they have to be prepared with parts and know that they can get machines in and out within generally a 30-day, 30-business-day window. If they can't do that, then there's a good chance that in many states that bike would be subjected to the rules of Lemon Law. Where they could have to buy, have the machine repurchased, uh, just because of time down. So if they if they release the recall, but they can't provide the parts or they don't think that they can get the jobs done, uh, then they're in a they're in a world of hurt. So I think that might be what's going down is that they're from a legal standpoint they're waiting until they know they have their ducks in a row, so that they have parts ready, they can ship to the shops and get it done. You see what I mean? No, absolutely. I think I think you 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 touch on a really good point there. And we should we should preface the way the lemon law works in the U.S. is very convoluted, horrible. And, and each state has its own set of lemon laws, and they vary. And they, most of them are very similar, where you have more or less like four. If you have a general uh, item of issue, you have four attempts. There's the bike can't be uh, inactive for th- or can't be at the dealership for more than 30 days. And if there's some states have, if it's a, like a grave safety issue, you have right, two attempts. So in, in California, it's two attempts if it's a safety issue. Yeah. It's four attempts at this, uh, for the same thing. Right. And then some of them have a limit on how many total. So it might go to eight right. v- visits during its warrant. This is key is that it's during the warranty period. Well, it's during the warranty period. And some of them specifically say mileage and some of them specifically have a, a time frame. And that's one of those things like people exploring like lemon law issues really should drill down to uh, what their states say. Like California's uh, direct lemon law doesn't apply to motorcycles. It gets covered by something else. It gets covered by California's general um uh, what I would say umbrella warranty act. It's called the uh, song Beverly consumer warranty act, which of course is then preempted by the federal kind of lemon law, which is the Magnuson Moss warranty. And that's act. what people need to know. They need to understand because a lot of, a lot of misinformation out there, there there's a couple states where there are no specific laws. People are like, Oh, well there's no, especially from the motorcycle shops are like, Oh, there's no lemon law here. And as a regional rep, I had to deal with that. Cause I was like, Oh, BS. 
There is. It's Magnuson Moss overall. Yeah. yeah. So a good lawyer can get sink their teeth right into it. So you better get that bike fixed ASAP. Right? Federal law always trumps state law. So that's the what I don't think a lot of people understand because they want they go online and they do a quick search for Lemon Law, type in their state, and they might find some base stuff that kind of gives them an idea, but they don't know, right? So in this case, though, it's this is extreme. I will say that out of all the all the recalls and warranties that I've known about for a while uh, since since I've been dealing with this, this is one of the more extreme ones as far as how much is involved with repairing it, right? So with Ducati, we'd have a fork tube. Well, that's a pretty easy repair. A, re- a rear wheel. You take it off and put it on. It a software update. Simple, right? Nothing that was heavy. But with BMW, that could get pretty gnarly. There's some of those things where you're getting, you have to wait for parts to come in. You're doing uh, the fuel level sending unit recall for those things over the past year. The the rear wheel spindle. Have you ever seen a BMW like when the boxer engines get its clutch serviced? Of have course. you seen what's in No, sure. I mean, it's it's tragic. It's it takes it's horrible. Yeah. But that's why the new boxer, the whatever the Wasser boxer, yeah. is amazing for that because the, finally the clutch isn't you know like a car. Let's 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 call it what it is. That engine looks, looks like a freaking <laughs> car. No, sorry, tractor looks like a tractor <laughs> engine, right? So when you have to split it like a Moto Guzzi and BMWs, because they run the wrong way, right? And then you have this freaking clutch. Well, not the wrong way. They just run their own way. Yeah, they're 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 own their own. They're right. spinning to their own crankshaft. Yeah, sure, they are. So that is gnarly, and that takes a lot of time, right? But that's not notwithstanding i'm just talking about the all the all the recalls that they have had to deal with which affected a lot of units suzuki had a recall of their brake master cylinders a couple few years ago and that affected almost every gsxr i mean we're talking a lot of bikes right that was a heavy duty one it'd be interesting to see what was the bottom line and how much did that affect them but it was an easy thing to fix you get the part the bike comes in it's probably half an hour a transmission and an M1, an R1. Oh my gosh, that is that's a 15 hour, 16, 16 hour yeah. labor labor job, and that's them paying out. So I guarantee you, you know, Joe Blow at Yamaha shop and you name it, USA is not going to get that sucker done in 16 hours, right? Well, well, that's kind of the issue. So so Yamaha sent out a technical bulletin to its dealerships, and it basically outlines everything that they're supposed to do as far as contacting owners and managing the recall uh, and then the process but they, of But they haven't the released the recall, but they've released this to this information to the dealers? Yeah. That's really strange. It's interesting, right? It's really interesting. And, then, and I think this is why we're getting into this this kind of quagmire, this, this kind of weird state of like, okay, so the information's out there. We know that this is an issue. We've seen Canada make the recall. Obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're posting stuff on Asphalt and Rubber about it. It's in the public sphere. But yet nothing has come from Yamaha on the consumer side of it. Obviously, they're talking to their dealers about it. And, and like you said, it's it's a it's a 15.8 hour job. Well, that's what they're paying their dealers. And, you know, we got into an interesting discussion about it on on A&R, um, you know, for like that dealer that's uh, that's going to service like two, three bikes. Like they're not going to probably get it done in 16 hours. So they end up kind of losing money on that deal as far yeah, as what their service is. No, but doing. here's here's what I'd say. Losing money. The technician should be efficient enough to, yeah, maybe it's going to be 18 hours, right? If they don't have a technician that can get that done, then it's their fault for not having a technician that's sharp enough, right? It's seriously, I mean, it's unfortunate, 
that it's that difficult to find technicians like that, but it's true that you should at a dealership that you're representing a company like Yamaha, you should have somebody that can get that done in a timely manner and not have a comeback and not have it blow up. Right. Is that a fair standard though for, for like some of these dealers? Like I'm just thinking in my head, like if you're a multi-line dealer, but like you're a small dealership, like, like you're just the motorcycle dealership in this sure, area. It's your cross to bear. So you're you, the one that signed up to be a Yamaha yeah. dealership, yeah. right? You're, you're toting that brand around. You're 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 waving your hand up and saying we are Yamaha. I want and, and I'm not saying it's this, not saying it should be, exactly like this, but it's similar. I'll use the Starbucks instead of McDonald's, but you know it's the same thing. You go to McDonald's, I get a Big Mac here. I get it in Key West. I get it in Bangor, Maine. It's going to be the same Big Mac, right? If I go to Starbucks, I order my macchiata, yada water, whatever. It's going to be similar, right? And that's what they want. They want that uniformity. And that's what the Japan, all the manufacturers, the Japanese manufacturers got this down a lot better than the Euros many years ago. But it's still pretty tough because the motorcycle industry and all of its race to the bottomness is a very difficult thing to, to, to manage, right? To keep good people in situ and in work, especially on the technician side. It's really hard. I don't, I don't disagree with anything you said. And the lawyer in me, like, absolutely. You signed the contract. You're representing the brand. Got it. The pragmatist in me, though, it's like, you know, these shops that maybe have one or two technicians, they're small. Like, I, at least I understand I understand the plight. On the same side, though, you, I think you brought up an interesting point offline when we were talking about it. Most of these guys, depending on the states, are going to get paid their advertised rate. So it's like this idea of like, okay, so your shop rate's like 100 bucks an hour. Yep. So, you know, you're looking at a 16-hour job. That's 1600 bucks that Yamaha's going to pay just for labor. Yep. You're probably paying your mechanic how much an hour? 30 bucks an hour? 40 bucks an hour? Oh, dude. Come on. If. Right? That's the problem. Right? Okay, that's another... That's so another, the shop's not losing any That's money, another really. podcast for... But I, we could touch on that is that there was, seemed to be this strange ceiling uh, for the past 15, 20 years where... Shops don't want to pay a technician anywhere over this like $30 an hour. They, they look at that as like, because the best techs in the height of the best time in the, in the mid late nineties, anybody that was like a super a tech that could, you know, bill 120% efficiency and proficiency and was awesome. They would make 30 an hour, but that was when the shops were $80 an hour. Now the shops are 110 to $120 an hour, and that ceiling is still there. It's like they don't, they're not creeping up on it. Is there's so much abject greed, right? And, and not understanding that if they paid people like that better, then they would make more money and everybody would be happier, and you'd keep these technicians. That's the problem. It's people just evacuate the industry because nobody can make money because the greed is just permeated everywhere in a really bizarre way relative to sales not service is it, is it greed or is it just um bad business practice not being able to compartmentalize the you know not being able to look at a dealership as a as a whole right i was gonna say like sophistication like for someone like me i've got a little bit of mechanical know-how but i'm not i'm not at your level for sure would i really be able to tell the quality and difference between that guy who's who's just a level and that guy who's like c level you know, what, what, oh, as, music, as me types. as a consumer, yeah. you know, and that's one of the things like, yeah, you can make that argument that, oh, yeah, that A-level guy, he should be getting 50, 60 bucks an hour or whatever that price is. And the other guy should be getting half. But like if if me, the consumer, can't really tell the difference between those, then then the value added is lost. And it's like, well, I just want I just want to get it cheap. 
I just want I just want to get my chain done. I just want to get my yeah. That's my valves that's adjusted. the race to the bottom stuff that I keep talking about. Yeah. right. Is the consumers are driving that, and it's horrible. It's the same consumer that goes to Revzilla, buys stuff, and then goes to the shop and asks how to use it, or goes to a shop, tries, tries on, on everything, gets all the information. <laughs> You know, spends time with somebody getting all the, you know, learning about the product from somebody face to face, goes home and, and buys it on, you know, whatever it is, kneedraggers.com or whatever these online sources are, which you can't fault them. They're just doing their job. But I can fault the a-hole customer that has just wasted that other person's time and and not help them reap the benefits. Right. And the, 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 the argument was like, well, it's so much more expensive. Well, you're. You got to get what you pay for, and what you're paying for is the knowledge behind the product. So you don't end up with a medium-sized helmet when you should have a small, or you don't end up with a, a shitty jacket that you that will not suit you relative to the one that uh, would have been better if you'd have let them sell it to you at the shop right then. It's an interesting thing to see, and I hate it. I hate watching it because it it helped. It's dragging everybody down. It's funny you mentioned that because that was something I was thinking about on that ride when I when I stopped by your house in the rain because I was thinking about the how important it is, like good fitting gear gear that fits you properly critical so much better than I mean, it doesn't even matter like what brand it is like if it fits you properly that's like 90 percent of the battle everything yeah. else is just kind of like secondary like if it fits your body right and it fits your your motions and what you're doing and you're comfortable in it like truly comfortable aces aces then start worrying about well you know is this brand better than that brand and this has got ce certified armor and that's ce sure. standard armor and sure know, but like, that's this is what things. I'm talking about is having somebody there to tell tell you about that. Yeah. That's why you go to somebody local and that's why you would pay them an extra 10%, maybe not 20, I don't know, where's what's the break point for it, right? But that's what you would do. If you got a $700 jacket that you can get for 680 online, f you. You should you should be going there and helping your local shop because that's why it's that that's that's how you keep good people at these shops. That people complain, "Well, I can't go to my local motorcycle shop because there are always different people there every time. Well, that's part of the race to the bottom of the industry. They can't keep them there because they're not making the money. It's very, it's a, it's a strange, not a downward spiral. It's just a spiral of weirdness. So I look at, I look at it more as like a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Like, cause I don't know what started it and I don't know what's, what's changing it, but there's definitely like the effect of like, I've definitely gone to dealerships where the salespeople are just worthless. Sure. Sure, and and you happens. just sit there and like the stocks, they're, they're carrying crappy stuff that not carrying a lot of sizes, not a lot of different colors like you're just like did you want that black jacket we got that black jacket we got it in a large i hope you're a large and then and then like you talk to the the guys there and they don't know anything about it or the brand and it's just they're just punching a time card and i've, and I've seen that and i can see the value of like and you're gonna charge me like 150 percent more than what i can get it online like because when i go to you know knee draggers revzilla whomever and and buy it i'm getting pretty much the same service that you're offering me at your brick and mortar I, so I can get that side, yeah, of it. but sure. I can also see like, you know, I've been to some really good stores where people know their stuff and they have a lot of different brands. They have a lot of different sizes, a lot of different colors. They can order it for you. And I think some dealerships are, are getting that uh, idea like, you know, yeah, you have to compete with online on price a little bit, but there is a value out of there. Like, hey, you came into our store, you tried something on a salesperson, a knowledgeable salesperson helped you for an hour. That's worth a little something to you. And you know that. I think who do you want as your customers? Like, do you really want that price sensitive person as your customer? Cause there's no loyalty there. They're only coming to you because of yeah, sure. what is on the price tag. Or do you want the person that 
is going to be a knowledgeable customer who's going to be a loyal customer like that's the kind of person i think you want to spend your time cultivating into your shop and having being a repeat customer and making sure that their buying experience is positive so I, I see it from a lot of different ways but it's tough and i think the the industry is still trying to figure out how to handle all that it's a difficult one sure for sure uh full tangent though we, that was that was, that was, that was one. a good rabbit hole yeah, yeah. that was a good that was one. Awesome so back come back around to what what's going on with the yamaha thing so in this in this case we had one in stock a uh r1 of it's it's 15 model right not yep. 16 yeah, so yeah. it's 15 model um and it was pre-owned and it's for sale so we called early as soon as we heard word of it we called the, one of our local yamaha shops said hey let us know because we're we've got this bike and we want to make sure to take care of it otherwise it's not sellable right, right? can't sell it so um you know, somebody selling it like not out of a dealership might be able to get away with saying, I had no idea, but a dealership, I mean, it's due diligence on our part to understand and know that there might be something wrong. Even if it's just hearsay at this stage, we have to be careful. But it wasn't like Yamaha was knocking down nope. your door saying, we had hey no guys, idea. you got to use one, don't sell it. <laughs> no, it was just the fact that we have a great connection uh, with the local dealership Pro Caliber. Um, and they, they were able to, you know, basically say, we'll get it in. I don't know exactly what's going to happen from here, but they took the bike. I, I didn't work with them. It was somebody else that was doing it. Um, so I don't know if parts are ordered. I don't know what's there. I'm assuming that it's, it's going to be done right in well, a fairly good amount of time. But what we saw online today with this one gentleman's like, this one shop's telling me that they are going to, they're not going to have parts till February. And if that's the case, that is why there's this hedging, why Yamaha might not be releasing, which would be directly antithetical to what NHTSA would do to Ducati. NHTSA would force us, ram it through, and make us do a recall even before we had it ready. I saw it multiple times where they would have it announced, and we hadn't even lined up the, the bulletin correctly and de-pigeon Englished it. You know, we had to de-Italianize a lot of the... <laughs> Uh, bulletins that would come from Italy. Not bad. Yeah. They'd gotten pretty good. We no, had one. I know, I know. Well, there was a couple of guys that were really good and they'd gotten close, but you know, you have to, you have to make it a little bit better for the U S market. So bless Luca, but, um, he, he would not always have it right. So we would have to do that. And it would take some time, right? There's Ducati North America was less than 50 people by like, it's like 40, 40 people. So there's not that many people to do this stuff. Well, they stuff. just lost a lot of people. So I don't even know if it's 40. Well, that's, that's a whole nother podcast. True, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's probably 30. So anyway, they, um, that, that compared to Yamaha corporate where there's, I don't it's know. Massive. Yeah. It's massive. a huge, I've, I mean, when I would be at the campus down in Cyprus looking across the sea, the sea of what, what is it when you have the room full of like office space, um, cubicles, cube, yeah. Cube farm. The CO cube farm, right? I would always get the chills because it just uh, was like, Ugh. I had to return a bike. I had a Super Tenere. I had to return. I returned it like super late and I arranged to like get through the gate and drop it off. And like some guy was going to come meet me, but it was super, super weird because like where I went into the building was like at the complete opposite yeah. end of where yeah. I had to drop off the sure. bike. I know exactly so I'm just where you were. Walking this Tenere down the hall, just, you know, just doors opening. Yep. Yep. Just like a sea of it. And you're just sitting there like, this is the creepiest experience. It's, it's, it's a massive facility. It's a, it's sure. a, it's a large commercial complex in Cyprus, California. Yep. Um, it was cool to be able to go there, go in the back door to the race shop and work out of the race shop sure. back in the day. Uh, we would have to do some special projects there. And that was cool. Cause that was, you know, it's a, it's a critical, awesome, badass place for 
road racing in the USA. Yamaha's corporate place is, I mean, it's, there's stories out of there for yeah. decades, right? So it's a neat, it's a neat spot for sure. Take, but yeah, the takeaway is definitely big night and day difference to, to somewhere yeah. like Ducati where you're coming from. Not even close. Canada's gnarly. Let me just say that. Anything that deals with, that's probably why we're seeing the recall in Canada first, because they don't suffer fools up there. Canada are not, but they don't have any consumer protection law like Lemon Law, not even anything. Like there's no threat of Lemon Law in Canada, which I thought was it's bizarre for the socialist state that it is, right? <laughs> or perceived, right? They so, probably have like moose law. Yeah, they probably do have lots of moose law. It's like if a moose yeah. comes and steps on your motorcycle and squashes it, that's covered by warranty. But if we screwed up while making it, eh, what's that all about, that? right? Yeah. <laughs> Every Canadian listener flicked us off. Fucking hoser. <laughs> Knob. All right, so um, that is interesting to see if, if NHTSA... Well, wow, geez. I thought it was... I, I'm sorry I hadn't dig, dug into it, but I thought that Yamaha had released the letter no that's because the crazy thing okay that's right. the crazy thing because I, I i thought for sure uh two weeks ago when we published this we would see it within days we, within days yeah within days and the fact that here we are two weeks later and by the time this podcast gets out maybe hopefully by the time this podcast gets out into the market uh yamaha will have announced it yeah Probably well we'll not, see so. so the people that are frustrated uh like one gentleman i can't remember his name was saying you know, I was frustrated by my purchase of my R1M. Yeah. Right. So I know that was a like little bit of a eight hundred miles on it too. Or that's all like he that. had. Yeah. Well, long, you know, long, that's long. that's ostensibly a special bike. Somebody looked at that as, oh well, that's fancy, right? You know, somebody like me who's been around Ducatis forever, it's not it's not really that fancy to me. It's a, yeah, it has Olin's, that's cool, and it has six axis IME. Who doesn't the stock one have six? So it's really mm -hmm. not. What, Electronic it, motor what part of the package is better on so, that bike? So the R1M comes with the uh, electronic suspension. Yeah. Electronic ones, and it comes with the data logger. Oh, yeah. And it's okay. got like the little... And some... Plug it in thing. Wheels, maybe? GPS. And yeah, it's got mag wheel. No? No different than the... Whatever. You're going to make me go so, look it up? No, it's okay. okay. Bottom line is it's no freaking 1199R, I'll say that. It's no Panigale R. Fighting words. Yep. Totally. So... You, you would take a Panigale over an R1? Oh, totally. Not even, not even a question. No, you're a Panigale R. You're such a fanboy. Yeah, I totally am. I, would, right? I don't think I would. No? No. No, I don't think so. What I do like the 1299 a lot more than the 1199. And I think the, the Panigale R, yeah. uh, the new one versus yeah. the old one, yeah. makes a lot more sense. No, that's what I'm saying. Because I did the press launch for the Panigale R. When it was, and it's fine. And I was like, really? Like, So it's like 30 grand and you just kind of wheels and it's got like 500 rods revs. and a crank and awesome i mean that yeah, thing's ripper yeah all right whatever not for the price it wasn't ripper i'll tell you that not not saying it's a bad bike i just looked at that and i was just like i don't get the price increase like you didn't do enough to it to to justify me plunking down like another 10 grand hmm. other than exclusivity i'm just not that kind of guy okay i'm not right. an exclusive kind of guy you know no you want to you want a Desmond Sedici. Yeah. 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 But that's. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. But that's something else completely. Sure. Desmond well, it's Sedici. Not, it's not even that exclusive because they, they were a bunch of idiots and they decided to make 1,500 of them after they said they were know. only going to make 500. 1,500. How many? There, are there 7 billion people on the planet? Yeah. Is it seven? Something like that. Yeah. But 1, how many? 1,500 motorcycles. Give me a break. That's, that's exclusive. 
by that math, then no. <laughs> hey, I might as well stretch so, it all so the way Ninja out. Ninja right? 250R. I'm yeah. gonna go that far on the continuum. I have no problem all with right. it. All right. All right. So hopefully these the, that guy. All right. So we went off on track. Sorry. So that gentleman was was frustrated with the purchase of that bike because I guess at the time there was dealers that were not getting them and some were getting them and they're special and they had to do a reorder. I don't. I don't. I didn't get because I don't pay attention to it. But there was an issue. With those M, well, they're yeah, they were only they only made a certain number of them, only a certain number brought into the U.S. So it's an exclusive item, and I think I think his issue too though was the fact that there was no talk of an extended warranty for the for the work or anything like that. Like they're going to be stuck to the same terms of his warranty. So. Yeah, well, that's that's normal. I mean, they're going to take it apart and put it back together. It's going to have its warranty. But you no, know, I, I guess I guess from the way I read that, and I think that was the comment I posted even was it just comes back to managing the expectations of of an owner making the recall uh experience um uh what's At, the what's, mit- what's, what's the, mitigating the, it as much as possible making it as at least as least shitty right i think i think the joke i made was like the chinese word for crisis and the chinese word for opportunity are the same that's that's the proverb the proverb right yeah and it's this idea of like you know yamaha like yeah this is a horrible thing and obviously this isn't ideal but there's an opportunity here for yamaha to to really extend like oh yeah a strong olive branch you build your make base things big right. time sure you'd make a fan out of most people if you said hey not only am i i know this is horrible we're going to extend your warranty for another year right and, and we're standing behind the product and let's look at it from just from like a cost perspective. Like this recall, like conservatively, is going to cost Yamaha about five million dollars. I would venture to guess it's going to be more like tens of millions of dollars. What's the added cost of just saying like, oh yeah, we're going to throw another year on your warranty? What what's the real what's going to be the realization of that cost? Yeah, sure. A couple thousand bucks. And and knowing it's a how, drop in the bucket. If especially if you look back the numbers that you talked about a couple weeks ago with the Consumer Reports on. What the 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 Japanese brands were at like twelve percent, thirteen percent, forty, whereas the the Euro brands were at like twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty, thirty one. So they really don't have that many warranty issues. Period. They just don't. It's right? like the joke. Like like if you ever you ever tried to buy a TV from Best Buy? No, I haven't. It's like almost up there with trying to buy like a used car. I bet. You know, like you get there and you're like, yeah, I want that TV, and like, okay, cool. Well, um. You're gonna to want to buy that three-year extended oh, yeah. warranty from sure. Best Buy, right? Sure. You're like, no, and you're like, oh, you should, you should totally. This it's only like an extra five hundred dollars on the cost. You should totally get one of these <laughs> because they know that it's just pure profit to them. Because yeah, because Yamaha has such a great success rate with making reliable machines, and obviously you're correcting the de- the defect that's in the uh, the R1. So you know, like. Hopefully, you're even more confident about. Well, how. that's the ri- that's the problem. Is the risk is how many how many Yamaha technicians are going to be doing it right? I think a lot. I have faith in the network. I have faith in the technicians that are out there. But there is a risk of that, and that's the perception. So, like this guy is. I don't want my. There's a few of these people. The the three right. or four letters that went to NHTSA that were on the website were. I don't want my brand new engine taken apart because they don't have faith in the local technician, right. or they're probably just posturing in those letters. But I get what they're where they're coming from. They're saying we don't want that. And at Ducati, we had to deal with this a lot. If we had a bike that had a major engine issue, and it was usually early on because it was a an assembly problem, right? I, I mean, 100% of the time, it was somebody effed up at the factory, 
and the and the engine failed because of it. It wasn't a design issue, right? right? So we'd have some sort of engine failure because somebody left the bolt loose and then we were having to deal with it. And the customer would get livid, like how how dare you possibly have my engine rebuilt? And our argument would be, well, the guys at the factory couldn't do it right. I think we could do a better job over here, right? Yeah. But that's a tough one. That's, you can't sell that to anybody, right? That's such a perception in the marketplace. That's such a perception. Like even I like have, have been victim to it because it's that idea of like what comes out of the factory is right. And what comes out of the dealership, you're throwing the dice. And I think we talked about this last show. Like, you know, if like Dave, the service tech at your shop is your buddy. Oh, Dave's going to work on my motor. That's going to be a good, he's going to do it right. But if you've like had nothing but trouble with Dave, Dave might be a great mechanic, but like if he didn't call you back when you thought he was supposed to call you back, <laughs> yeah. you'd be like, oh man, I don't want Dave getting his fingers in my, in my engine. That's not going to be no good. I'm going to have a crappy, I'm going to have an even worse engine than I came out with. Uh, it's such a horrible, it's tough. yeah, it is. It's so horrible to think about because again, as a technician, as somebody that's an advocate for the technicians, I hate to hear this stuff, right? Because these people work very hard to learn their craft and to be better, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have much for it. I'm very frustrated to hear it because I've had to deal with it for so long, and I know a lot of the techs are so good and they want to do really good. But if you don't assemble engines all the time, then you aren't going to be as good, right? So right. somebody like AJ at Moto Corsa, one of the top technicians in the nation, TJ at Moto Union in Milwaukee, right? These guys have assembled and dis disassembled and assembled tens of tens a hundred engines over their careers it's it's easy for them they know what they need to know they don't they know what they don't know and they know when to ask whereas joe blow at midwest shop that they became a ducati dealer three years ago and they haven't they haven't had to touch an engine they've gone through a you know a two-week training class at the most yeah it, it is tough it is tough to say you have confidence in that person to be able to do it but I saw it over and over again. They'd be just fine, even with a Ducati, even with something that is so oddball as a Ducati. So I, I can only hope that the bulk of the Yamaha dealers are going to have the same experience. They're going to have techs that can get it done, get it done right. And I hope that the, the, the general populace has the faith and lets it get down. And just got that way, everybody wins, including, including Ducati, including Triumph, including Guzzi, whoever, because it brings down the whole industry if everybody has a bad experience with even with yamahas right we want sport bike people to be happy with the bikes that they have including the current hottest shit bike out there which is the r1 right yeah i mean th that's the thing for me like and, and the cynic in me is like this is very interesting but you know there's a part of it's like at least for yamaha it came at the end of the season totally sure you know? because no, this for the, sure for the shops this is a boon for me from a technical standpoint i'm like this is exactly what i'd want i'd want a bunch of juicy engine builds to keep my techs busy over the winter in seasonal operations like motorcycles, this is perfect time. It's perfect. Perfect for that. But I was just thinking for more from this, like from a sales perspective. Oh, like they've already sold the units. If, sure. They've already sold. They've they've gotten every unit they were going to sell in 2015. They've probably sold because who's buying an R1 in December on December 7th? You yeah, know? sure. Or, or or whatever day. Um, so so and then like you look at the 2016s, like this isn't really. I don't think it's going to hurt 2016 sales because. The issue has been resolved. No 2016 bikes have been affected. Sure. The only downside, of course, is because now you're at the end of the, the sales year, it's literally affecting every bike that's been sold this year, which is thousands and thousands of bikes. Yeah. Um, I was trying to do some research to figure it out. I mean, it's going to be at least 
2,000, 3,000 bikes sure. in the U.S. Sure. Uh, so that's going to be, you know, obviously from a cost perspective, that's maybe not ideal. But, you know, it's interesting. The timing the timing's interesting. And, um, you know, I, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully we're not seeing this bleed into 2016 riding season. You know, if, if, if shops really are having a hard time getting parts until February, whew. Yeah, because if you're looking at like uh, this local shop, which I don't know if they're a heavy duty Yamaha shop, I'm not aware. I know they're just one of the local big box dealers, right? They sold about 15, so that's 15. And uh, you know, I mean, you'd have to do the math, but if you've got a technician doing 15 bikes at 15 hours, that's that's a lot of hours and multiple technicians, hopefully. But and that doesn't even get into the cost of the parts. No, sure. And that doesn't get into the what the real time is. So I would say for the per, first 10, sorry, first five bikes or so, it's probably going to be 20 hours each, right? Until they get good. But they might end up getting to down to 10. This is this is part of the thing a lot of people don't understand is flat rate labor. So technicians in a lot of places, they don't make just hourly. They don't make just salary especially when they're good, they make a flat rate. So if you go in and you're getting a service on your bike and it's a four hour service, you pay four hours no matter what. If it takes a technician eight, then they are only getting paid four. If it takes them two, then they're getting paid four, right? So if you're good at what you do, then you get the thing out in two and then you get on the next job and you keep adding those up and adding those up. Doesn't that encourage people to cut corners though? It can do. Absolutely. But you can't have comebacks. So if you have a comeback, then you usually get penalized and or fired, right? So you got to be able to do it right. So, but there are there are there are definitely cuts, right? What, what defines a comeback? Uh, a a person bringing the motorcycle back after something has gone wrong. So if you've just rushed through a service and you didn't get that valve cover in correctly and it leaks, the person comes back, then you're eating that labor, right? And you've just potentially irked the customer and you've made yourself look bad. So there's that. So depending on the shop, you know, three strikes are out or whatever. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Depending on the type of comeback. It's sure, one thing, sure, sure, one sure. thing to have an oil leak because you didn't get quite enough goo on the on the cam cap, right? It's another to leave a bolt loose. Happens. My cam cap never has You got to have the cam caps tight. Um, but, a, you know, leave a, uh, the, the, a bolt loose somewhere and it causes the, the, the bike to, sure. to fall. That's first time fireable sometimes. You know, it depends on the, on the situation, right? You can't, I mean, there's too many different variables, but that's why I'm working on motorcycles is such a, it, it's a gnarly thing. You are responsible for lives. Oh, it's ter- It's terrifying. It terrifies me. Like the, my legal mind is terrified by the idea of the legal liability that goes into operating on a vehicle. Yeah. Cause it's just, cause especially with a motorcycle, cause so many things can turn into and this is this kind of goes back to the Lemon Law with the Song Beverly Act and the Magnuson Moss Act. Like they start talking about safety issues and and this idea because it's, it's it's very general. Like it's just general liability, general product liability kind of verbiage. So like when you start talking to like safety issues, like when you start thinking like like a toaster and its safety issues, well that's like it caught on fire and burns down your house. But a sure. motorcycle, like little things, can mean the bike falling over or the bike stalling or or whatever that issue may be that p- then puts the rider in harm's way because there's the rider is so prone to things where like if a car stalled i think it would still be considered a safety issue but it's not as grave as it would be if the motorcycle no stalled. if you leave a, a uh, your drain bolt loose in a car you go down the road 
your engine light will come on, right? Because it's or, or or an oil pressure light or something. Right, something's gonna go off. Yeah, the chances of that oil actually getting in the rear tires is is not that great. It it go it splits in the between, and you're going down the road, and it it just leaks out. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible for the people behind you. Not, not a good deal. Not a good deal. It's a bad deal. It's a bad deal, right? But it is what it is. Or sorry. So anyway, that is that's not you do that on a motorcycle it you're down right the oil if the oil if the in general not saying it happens every single time but if an oil drain bolt falls out as somebody's going down the road that oil goes directly onto the rear wheel it it splatters through the fairings it it hangs on to the engine and goes onto the rear tire it's ice right so that's critical you're i mean and that and it happens it's it's a very unfortunate thing it's not it's not as hard as you think it is you're going through a service you're trying to get it done quick and then the one thing that you need to check you had one job is that you didn't retorque the torque that properly right and then somebody dies and that's fucked it's it's a scary thing so being a technician it scares a lot of us even those those awesome technicians I was talking about earlier, sometimes they have to have they have those come to Jesus moments where they've released a bike and maybe the person's crashed not long after they picked it up and it's happenstance, but that makes your mind go nuts because you're like, is it something I did? What did I do? Most good technicians, that's the first thing they think about is what did I do? Because they came here and it was fine, and it, and they left and it wasn't. So what could it be? That's the first thing you have to think of. You know, rack your brain and yeah. in, in, in it. It makes you want to stop. We call so that, it makes a lot of people want to stop. We call that proximate cause in the legal industry. Proximate cause. Your actions were the proximate cause sure. to that. It might outcome. not be the cause, but it was proximate. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole other thing. Like That, that goes down a, a whole other rabbit hole of legal definitions. But proximate cause means like your what your actions is what significantly contributed to that outcome. Yeah, sure. Or directly caused it. Sure. Um, that would, yeah, it would keep me up at night. Um I think with that, you know, I was hoping that we could wrap up this kind of R1 recall talk in this show, but I think this is going to be on for a little Yeah, I'm sorry longer. we can't either. I had I was just under the impression that 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 it had been released yeah. because because mainly because that bike got picked up from us. <laughs> yeah. I think I think we'll we'll continue to keep apprised of the situation. I don't think we'll we'll dive into it as deep uh from now on, but yeah, it's sure. definitely something that's going to be out there because it's just it's just such a note. It's going to be so many bikes. It's all the bikes in the US. All the R1, all the R1M street bikes sold in 2015 are gonna have to and the and this is the bike that won the ama Superstock championship the ama Superbike championship obviously a good machine i haven't heard anybody complain i've heard of a couple of them blowing up or having problems when they were when they raced in um uh, club racing but you you can never trust club racers to do shit right so i that, i always <laughs> kind of like yeah. if somebody says hey my engine blew up i'm always like yeah, you overrepped the crap what out were of that you doing? thing, right? Yeah, the only the only complaint I really heard from people when it first came out was the the rear suspension linkage, kind of giving getting some giving some pump, but you they know, figured it just, that out. It just takes time, sure. yeah. yeah. But it'll be interesting. Um, we definitely have some interesting shows ahead of us, so uh, I think we'll stay tuned on that and wrap this one up. Right on. Does that mean kickstands up? Oh, it's kickstands up time, baby. All right. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Good talk, Lynn, and I'll see you out there. All right, later. Uh, you know, Supreme Court Justice, he's now in the the man is now inside the woman, and she is re reciprocating the pleasure to him and uh <laughs>